0: This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we
1: going to stand with God, come what may? That the Word of God says it, I believe it!
0: And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy. These are the words of Amos 3, and they are striking, especially in light of the distressing and challenging circumstances that we've all lived through in 2020 and now also into 2021. But what remains a bit of a mystery is why so many Christian leaders and pastors have seen God's dark providences all around us and yet fail to issue any clarion call of repentance, especially to God's people. Where has that call been? Why the silence? We're gonna talk about it today with Dr. Josh Moody, senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. He's also president and founder of God-Centered Life Ministries. And today we'll be talking with Josh about a really great article he's written over at his website, GodCenteredLife.org. The article is called, Appropriately, Return to God. Josh, so great to have you here again. Again, How are you?
2: Oh, thank you so much, Janet. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, inviting me back again. Uh, doing very well. Strange times in which we live.
0: Very much so. I really appreciate this article because I honestly have been asking this same question for the better part of the last year. Why are we hearing so much about stress and tension and suffering, all of which are appropriate things to discuss during a pandemic and political upheaval? Not so much of a clarion call, as you point out, to repent, to say, look at all of these circumstances around us. The Lord is trying to wake us up and tell us something. We need to repent. What is going on? What have you been observing about these times?
2: Yeah, I think it's part of a broader pattern. So what what I think is happening, has happened, is over the last, well, how long? Uh, 10, 20, 30 years, let's pick a number, maybe it's 15 years or something, the church, and perhaps longer, has radically underplayed the core message of the gospel, which is that we are all sinners. I mean, it's just been undertaught, And the reason why is because the church has wanted to be attractive to um, non-Christians. It's wanted an upbeat, positive message to keep um, more superficial Christians in the church. And so the churches tend to underplay um, that I'm the problem. And and because of that, as a consequence of that, there have been lots of repercussions. One of them, and that's, this is not what the article is about, it's related. But one of them is that we uh, tend to blame other people. We blame the social structures. We blame the politics. We blame anything. But, hello, me. Yes. <laughs> I, right. I'm the. I'm a. You know, it's my heart, and it's what Jesus teaches is out of the heart. we have not been teaching that. And um, then when you come through this um, uh, global COVID crisis that we're all in, of course we should um, do pastoral care. Of course we should teach that Jesus suffered and understands what suffering is. There's a book in the Bible about that in the Old Testament called Job. Uh, yes. That is a very important part of the Christian message. But it's fascinating to me that the what the Puritans used to call the Jeremiah, the, 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 when there's a... Uh, a clear, dark providence, um, we should call not not the world to repent, and of course the world does need to repent, but God's people. Um, And there's a lot in the church today, and in my own life, that it's time to get right. Come on, let's get our house in order. And so anyway. I felt I needed to write the article and I did. Thank you for for picking it up.
0: No, you're totally right about that. It's interesting. There's so much we can get into on this and we'll do the best that we can in the time that we're allotted. But for example, when you talk about a Jeremiah, you're right. Especially when you go back to the Puritans. I was thinking right away when I read your article of God's Terrible Voice in the City, a book that I have by Thomas Vincent. This is an English Puritan minister who wrote about this time period where all sorts of horrible things were going on. 1667 and a few years earlier, you had the great ejection where you had thousands of ministers taken out of their pulpits, and you had the great fire of London, and you had the bubonic plague. You had all of these things going on at the time, and his whole thrust of his message was exactly what you're saying. Wake up, church. Pay attention. Repent, because God is trying to show us his displeasure and i mean talk about this a little bit i know that you quote john owen and some others but this issue of previous generations of ministers seeing god's displeasure in events like we're living through
2: yes i mean it was a very common pattern uh, when there was a um, uh, a dark cloud whether it be a storm that has uh, damaged the city or uh, often a plague um the you read uh, that the Puritans' response to plague um, was twofold. One was the pastoral. They stayed in the city. They cared for the sick. Um, Spurgeon uh, was um, a lot of the uptick of Spurgeon's ministry at the beginning, of uh, who was called, sometimes called the last of the Puritans, although many of them are still around, really. But uh, Spurgeon um, stayed in the city. He cared for those who uh, had come down with a it was cholera, actually, but they didn't know what it was, I don't think, but okay. he, and he thought he was putting his life at risk, he stayed, he cared for them. So they did that too, but they also said, uh, this because God is sovereign, because he's a holy God, these things are sent to warn us. And I mean, even someone like C.S. Lewis, who of course would never be thought of as a purist, I suppose, and, but he had the, much of the same, you know, uh, biblical gospel message in, in what he was uh, teaching. Um, C.S. Lewis famously said that um, God whispers in our pleasures, uh, but he shouts in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to a deaf world. And so we need to pick up that megaphone. What is God saying? And if we look around the church today, there certainly is a lot that we need to put our house in order. And uh, it's difficult to say that as a preacher or pastor, because people think that you're pointing fingers at them, and that's, that's also wrong, isn't it? I mean, Jesus taught about that when you see a back in someone else's eye, what are you to do? You're to look at the log in your own eye. It's me. It's not other people. It's me. Um, We need to all get on our knees. Um, and ask God for forgiveness.
0: Well, we do. And, you know, it's interesting, the times in which we're living, and you referenced this a couple of minutes ago when you talked about the fact that we're not so much about sin these days. We don't want, we want to downplay it so people will show up in the church every single Sunday. And mm-hmm. We can keep the offering plates filled or whatever the motivation is. But also, along with that, Josh, it occurs to me that today we often hear from Christians, if something bad happened, it's not God's fault. You hear a lot of that. God didn't do it because they actually believe uh, wrongly that if something terrible occurs that God couldn't possibly have had had anything to do with it. But yet the verse that I was reading, the several verses I was reading at the beginning of our interview from Amos say the exact opposite. Did did the calamity occur without the Lord behind it? And and what about this problem of faulty theology? Are people really reading their Bibles when we look at this subject?
2: Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that phrase. It's not God's fault. Is that common? Wow. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, it's just plain wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Amos, for sure, that's a great reference. Um, you know, Romans 9, um, God hardened uh, Pharaoh's heart. Now, these are great mysteries. Oh, you know, one of the ones one way of expressing it is God stands behind um, evil and good in different ways. Of course, right. of course he does. Right. Um, and so we mustn't develop a sort of fatalistic view of God. He, he, Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Sure, um, But the the Bible does teach that God is absolutely sovereign. I think how terrible it would be if he wasn't. What would we be saying? We'd be saying that God, um, when, when the... Uh, uh, when the the child, the five-year-old, was crossing the road and the parent uh, didn't notice and got hit by a car and died, God wasn't strong enough
0: mm.
2: or capable enough to even notice. Well, right. What kind of God is that? Right, right. Um, and how can you comfort that parent? You know, how does she know it's not going to happen again? Instead, the message is, oh, this is terribly hard, terribly sad. That's and right. We do live in a broken world, and God has a solution to that. Well, you know, come alongside you and, and be that solution.
0: You're totally that's, right about that. That's
2: the that. Christian message, but it's totally different. Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to step on you there because I was thinking about the old, you know, deistic worldview where God is a divine watchmaker. He just winds up the world and sits back and watches it happen, but he's not actually actively engaged with the world he's made. And we know that that's not the Bible's teaching. We're going to come back, Josh Moody, with us talking about returning to God. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League international she's learning to share her faith and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village bibles are desperately needed in africa and around the world right now and you can send one to a bible list believer today for only five dollars or fifty dollars will send 10 bibles become a bible sender today by calling 800 yes word that's 800 y-e-s-w-o-r-d 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not in So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. Thank you for being with us. And it's great to have here Dr. Josh Moody, Senior Pastor of College Church in Wheaton and President and Founder of God-Centered Life Ministries. His website, GodCenteredLife.org. And he's got a great article up, Return to God, and really putting into perspective how we should be seeing some of the providences, the dark providences that God has sent to us in the previous year and ongoing, it would seem, related to the COVID-19 pandemic, the political turmoil. We've seen a lot of bad things occur. And there are a lot of people who are noticing this, Josh, and yet we are not often hearing from our pulpits, this is sent by God and we need to repent. Now, how do you actually explain to people how you are to know if a certain situation or series of situations actually is a wake-up call from God because there there will be people who don't really understand, well, how do you know God is sending this in order to get us to repent? How do how do we respond to that?
2: Yeah, and this is one of the reasons, of course, why people are wear, wary of this sort of message. Someone gets uh, cancer. It's sent by God. It's your fault. Well, no, no, we don't want to say that. Of course not. Um, and Jesus taught about uh, that, too, uh, the, um, the Tower of Siloam yes. that fell on people and they died. And, 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 uh, and were these people worse sinners than you? No, no of course not. We're all sinners. Um, uh, but unless you repent, you too will perish. So the message is not, uh, this evil thing has happened, ergo, therefore, you're an evil person, and other people on whom it has not fallen are less evil. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the message is, we live in a world that was created good but it's fallen, and every time we experience the fall, evil, pain, suffering, it's a message that this world is fallen, and I am fallen, and therefore I
0: need to repent. Right, that's right. Well, so now when you're looking at COVID nineteen and some of the other things that we've experienced, how do you think that relates to the need for the American church to repent? I, I think that you probably could talk for quite a while, Josh, about all the things that the American church needs to repent of, uh, and I certainly could as well, but. Can you connect those things, the sins that ail us at the moment that really are serious to the Lord, and he would actually look at these things and say, you must wake up, you must repent and return to me?
2: Again, very tricky, isn't it? I, I think the number one I would pick up is, is Jesus' teaching on this, which is uh, when you see, um, and I mentioned this just earlier, but when you see a speck in someone else's eye, Uh, What are you to do? So I could look around and see all sorts of evil and difficulties, and perhaps there are those specks around me. But when I see them, my response needs to be to say, well, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. What's the log in my own eye? Um, And I think that that we're not doing that. Is And there are lots of doctrinal and functional things that I could mention that uh, concern me, and I'm sure concern you, Janet, too. The lack of Bible teaching would be, one, some Mm -hmm. of the... um, Huge ethical challenges that uh, churches seem to be facing, particularly in leadership, which seem to be related to basic worldliness, as far as I can see. Yes. Um, uh, so we could talk about those things, but I, at even deeper and more, and, and uh, I think really more, well, i sure more important, but more basic level, is this tendency to always blame someone else. Hmm. Um, well, why is that situation? Maybe it's my fault. i would be asking that. How, how much have I really been at fault here? Have I done enough to um, get the word out that Bible teaching doesn't have to be boring and it really is really is important? How am I doing enough? Right. And perhaps I'm not. Um, and, and so I think we have to say, uh, you know, Jesus said Jesus says that the, 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 the it's out of the heart. It's it's my my. I need to think about my life my responsibility. You know, don't blame the politics. Don't blame uh, social. And I think on the right and the left right now, everyone is blaming external things. You know, the left talk about um, all the social structures and the right talk about all the politics. Well, I bet there's something to all of that. Um, and, but Jesus talks about the heart. And <laughs> it's very humbling. It's like, well, what, what's my fault here? What am I doing wrong? Yes, that's true. And what do I need to do to put it right?
0: Exactly. Um, and
2: I, of course, don't have an answer to that for other people. I've got to think about it for myself.
0: Right. But that's an important point, And that's something that I don't often, often hear pastors saying, like you're just expressing, me first. You know, there are a lot of people who sometimes will point fingers and they don't spend time looking at the center in the mirror and saying to themselves exactly that reminder that you offered that we are told, you know, take the, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. For this issue, though, on this whole subject of returning to God, what would be your directive or your advice to Christians who say, boy, I I really have, you know, backslid. I, I really am waking up now to my sin and I'm seeing things in the last year that maybe if times were easier, I wouldn't have seen. And I really want to return to God because I think that I've grown lukewarm. Where do you begin in helping that Christian return to the Lord?
2: Well, let me tell you a story. So we did a, at the beginning of the year, uh, I was reading through a um, biography of Spurgeon over Christmas, and I, I found out that he did this, or if, perhaps I knew before, but I've forgotten, or maybe I found out for the first time. But anyway, at the beginning of each year, he called his church to come together um, to pray and repent at the beginning of the year for a week. Good. Good. And I thought, what a great idea. So I did the same, uh, and um, I had to travel back to England because uh, some of my family's is um, very sick, so I had to go back and uh, do some family um, things. And then I had to quarantine when I came back, so I wasn't preaching, but I gave a little video message to the congregation saying we're going to have a series of um, prayer meetings called Return to God, and the purpose of these is simply to do that, to return to God. And so we had these prayer meetings, and I tell you, Janet, one of the prayer meetings, and I don't think I'll ever forget this, I was a man praying, I know he is, who he is, a very godly, um, senior saint, uh, lived the most extraordinary life, um, and other people were praying, and there was a bit of silence. And this man, that we all know is very godly, quite eminent, um, just said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm-hmm. So I guess that that's it, isn't it? <laughs>
0: that's right. That's right. And that's exactly, I mean, right from Scripture, right? That's exactly yeah. to be the state of our hearts no matter where we are in our Christian lives. Yeah. Lord, have mercy on me. sinner. What more can we say to a holy God? We know how guilty we are.
2: Psalm, you know, the, uh, the penitential psalms, of course, create in me a clean heart. But Lord, renew a right spirit within me.
0: That's right. That's important. Um, would be another good prayer. Yeah. Well, and you point out in your article the importance of repenting of any known sin. I mean, the Puritans yeah. obviously were great at reminding, you know, Christians how to repent and, and get into great detail, which I found very, very helpful throughout my life. But what about this issue of repent of the sins that you know you have committed? We obviously sin in thought, word, and deed. We probably miss some of the sins when we're racking our brains and our memories for all of them. But But what kind of response should we have before God on a daily basis when it comes to repentance just as a way of life? Yeah.
2: Uh, I suppose, like um, many of us, I use um, mnemonics uh, tools to help me remember uh, parts of of prayer. Uh, We often say, don't we, that prayer is just having a conversation with God, and that's true. Um, But there are better and worse kinds of conversations to have with God, and uh, even Jesus teaches how to pray. So there is a way to pray, not just a random chit-chat. Yes. and um, I used the uh, mnemonic STOP that was taught to me when I was a teenager by our teacher at high school. There was a little revival going on at the time, and he taught us this uh, mnemonic uh, STOP. First of all, STOP. Remember who God is. Then S, sorry. Um, say sorry for the things you've done wrong. Then T, thank him. Thank mm-hmm. him for all his answers of prayer. O, pray for others, your family, your friends, non-Christians. And then P, finally, please, pray for yourself and i've used that throughout my life and found it very
0: helpful that's great I love that i I find those devices very helpful actually that's a yeah, good one I do to too. Yeah.
2: Bit, you yeah know, but i'm a bear of small brain I need simple things yeah my
0: mind. <laughs> yes, me too you know when you bring up the issue of revival, I think there's probably not a Christian listening who wouldn't want to see revival and wouldn't yeah. want to see the church having a fresh move of the spirit and a renewed Uh, you know, repentance and faith in Christ and a resolve to live for Him and be sold out for Him and be on fire for Him and just see that life coming back into the church. What are your thoughts on the prospects for a revival coming out of all of this anguish that so many of us have been suffering through?
2: I've done a lot of study on revival over the years. um, uh, The Great Awakening was a a lengthy. I studied that for a long time. And then other revivals, of course, the Welsh Revival, Um, and other smaller, that's all, that's all under revivals. Um, I think there are sort of two equal and opposite um, errors with relation to revival. The, the first error is the thing that it's a mechanism. There's certain things that you can do. Um, you just follow these rules, and revival will turn up. And that, that doesn't at all seem to be the Bible's teaching. A God, a revival is something that God does. In the same way, regeneration is something God does. Mm-hmm. I cannot make revival happen. Right. Um, any more than I can make force someone to be regenerate. It's a work of the Spirit. And But there are, there's been teaching in the Church historically, and I'm sure there are people who lean that way still today, that you, know, you just follow these rules and you'll have revival. I don't think that's the case. Um, on the other hand, at the other extreme, there are people who seem to have said, again, there's been teaching like this at the Church and still today, that. Um, revival is so sort of random. There's absolutely nothing you can do and you can pray for it, but then it's all rather depressing because <laughs> it's unlikely to turn up. Um, and you sort of sit around hoping it will hit you like a lightning bolt. Um, so, but I think the right approach is, um, first of all, you do the normal things. So you pray, you preach, you repent of your sin, you love one another, you do normal, uh, I say normal, it's supernatural, but the biblical Christianity. And you do that as well as you can in the power of God. You wrestle with all his energy that so powerfully works in, in, in you, as Paul puts it in Colossians. And so you do that. Um, and that it, and God will work through that. And that itself is wonderful. Um, and I think you can you can discern, yes. um, Edwards did a lot of this, that there are certain things that if you emphasize... Um, uh, it's it's more likely that yes.
0: revival will come We're going to have to leave it there Dr. Josh Moody From College Church GodCenteredLife.org Is the website Thank you so much, Josh This is Janet Meffer Today Welcome back. Former Secretary of State John Kerry is the new climate czar who has a lot of explaining to do. This is the man who took a private jet to Iceland in 2019 to accept an award for leadership on climate issues. And when confronted about his blatant hypocrisy, Kerry said his carbon footprint was, quote, the only choice for somebody like me who is traveling the world to win this battle. Okay, but his do as I say, not as I do routine goes back even further than that. As my next guest points out, for example, Kerry actually broke the record for most miles flown and most carbon dioxide emitted by any secretary of state and the State Department bragged about it. So we're going to talk about that and some other important information on climate alarmism today with James Taylor, president of the Heartland Institute, who writes about it over at climaterealism.com. James, great to have you with us. How are you? Hey, doing well, Janet. Thank you for having me on. Well, wonderful to talk to you. This is not the first instance of John Kerry's hypocrisy on climate activism, but what do you make of him taking a private jet to accept a climate leadership award? I mean, that's some chutzpah there.
1: Yeah, two things really jump out at me for that. First of all, this wasn't some uh, meeting of uh, diplomatic representatives from nations around the world or some conference to present the latest scientific research, this was John Kerry's ego stoking him to go accept an award. Yeah, That's what it was. If we are truly facing the greatest threat in human history, you don't go on a junket to Iceland to an accept award when you're spewing carbon dioxide emissions in your private jet, which the climate left tells us airplane travel is about the worst thing that you can do for the environment. Secondly, when he was asked about whether there's hypocrisy, for him flying his private jet to Iceland to receive the award, he said, well, I have no other choice. Uh, It would take me days to sail on the ocean and I'm a busy man. (laughs) But he deliberately twisted the question because the question wasn't about flying versus sailing. It was about his private jet. John Kerry could have easily flown commercial first class and gotten to Iceland in comfort while diluting his carbon dioxide emissions with the other 200 or so people on the flight. Instead, well, he's John Kerry, darn it, and he gets to fly a private jet while the rest of us have to curtail our carbon dioxide emissions. Oh, so yeah. it tells you exactly what John Kerry thinks about whether this is such, a, such an imminent catastrophic crisis – because he, he needs to fly his private jet to go accept an award.
0: Yeah, and he's so pompous about it. It's not as if he even tries to look a little bit humbled and say, well, I know it looks bad, but, you know, and try to be a little bit nice about it and, and earn some goodwill. He just stands up it's like he doesn't even care. We don't even care what you think, yeah, he, you little people. I have a private jet and I'm an important guy. Therefore, just deal with it. Yeah,
1: he talked down to the reporter asking the question by saying, I negotiated on behalf of America for the Paris Climate Accord so I guess, therefore, we're not allowed to question him and his (laughs) carbon dioxide emissions.
0: Yeah. And you also talk about the fact that in 2016, he did something even worse. He took a personal sightseeing tour of Antarctica. Sightseeing tour. This wasn't even something he was doing for business. Tell us a little bit about what he did.
1: Right. So this is in late November 2016. John Kerry is the secretary of state. The State Department website earlier in the year was already bragging up and down about how John Kerry had flown more air miles than any other secretary of state in history, which of course means more carbon dioxide emissions. Hmm. So now here after Donald Trump has been elected, he's the president elect, there is nothing for John Kerry to do. <laughs> I mean, we are already transitioning. Moreover, even if we wanted to argue that, well, his job goes through until the last day of office, it's not like there are a bevy of diplomats from other nations waiting around at our in antarctica to meet with john kerry this was purely a joyride. this was john kerry saying i have a month left that i can fly around the world on taxpayer expense even though i'm a billionaire but um hmm, i kind of think it'd be neat to go see antarctica (laughs) so he flies an air force large cargo jet to antarctica spewing carbon dioxide all over the place getting there then when he gets there he takes a personal helicopter tour all over the place Again, releasing not only carbon dioxide, but traditionally defined pollutants in an area that is pristine and undisturbed. He's out there polluting Antarctica. And then on top of that, he's riding around in an SUV around the Antarctic base. He spent two days doing this for absolutely no diplomatic purpose whatsoever, whatsoever, other than his personal pleasure. And again, this is the person who lectures the rest of us about how we shouldn't take a car to work uh, because we need to reduce carbon dioxide emissions.
0: Well, right. And this kind of reminds me of when people were pointing out Al Gore's hypocrisy on the climate issue as well. And I know there have been some other people as well, but you know, his mansion and the fact that he flies around and many people have pointed out the hypocrisy of the left who want us to give up absolutely all means of travel, it would seem in some cases, but they don't want to be held accountable. Has any Anybody on the left that you know of pointed out this hypocrisy, a, a true believer in all of this climate alarmism who says this guy needs to go. He's making us look bad. Uh, no, they don't,
1: because they know that uh, the media, as most people see the media, will never call them out on it. it. It takes it takes folks that are outside the corporate mainstream media to call attention to this. You know, Harrison Ford, who is a climate warrior, uh, you know, brags about how he takes his private jet to fly up to his favorite cheeseburger spot when he feels like getting their cheeseburger. Al Gore, as you mentioned, flies all over the place. I remember back when there were congressional hearings on climate change. Al Gore's testifying. So he's going from Tennessee to Washington, D.C. And it's not that far of a trip, but he gets his own private jet that flies him from Tennessee to Washington, D.C. When he gets there, he doesn't take... He doesn't take the metro. There's a metro, the subway stop, right there at the airport that takes you right to the Capitol. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even take an Uber or a taxi. He has a private limousine waiting to take him to Capitol Hill. And there he goes and lectures the rest of us about how we need to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Harry Reid, when he was uh, leading the U.S. Senate and lecturing everybody about carbon dioxide emissions, I was at a conference that Harry Reid spoke at. There were protesters, actually protesting for more environmental action, so They were on his side. They were protesting outside the conference, about 100 yards away from the building on the sidewalk to the street. Harry Reid had a fleet of about a dozen SUVs sitting there, idling their engines, running the whole time while he was talking inside. Then he came out to greet the protesters, so he gets in his SUV and has the fleet take him 100 yards, the whole caravan, So he can then talk about how oil is so horrible and how we need to stop using it. (sighs) This tells you what the left feels about what they really say. They don't believe in the climate crisis or they would take actions themselves to reduce their footprint.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. And at the same time, we had Kerry recently saying that we have to have even more restrictions than the Paris Accord, including the imposition of a new tax on carbon dioxide. So it would seem he'd be having to pay a lot of taxes himself if he imposed it on his own travels
1: yeah and it's funny because John Kerry lectured the reporter in Iceland about his carbon dioxide emissions to accept his re- his reward by saying his award by saying well i i I do carbon offset, so therefore it's 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 taken care of <laughs> in other words, he sends a check to Al Gore <laughs> here Al, here's ten thousand dollars thanks John Kerry, and therefore it's like that trip never happened. <laughs> it just it exposes the hypocrisy of these people.
0: Well, doesn't it also kind of make the point for our side that we say, see, it isn't that easy to do what you guys want the rest of us to do because you can't even do it. Can we use this for our own argumentation in order to point out not just their own hypocrisy, but the value of our position, which is you guys are out of control with all this alarmism?
1: Yeah, yeah Absolutely. That's a great point. They have more resources than the rest of us. They should find it easier to comply with carbon dioxide restrictions and cut-downs. But when you get to the heart of it, their convenience, their political popularity mean more than actually reducing carbon dioxide emissions. And it just goes to show, again, this is not an existential crisis that threatens to destroy the earth or else they would be practicing what they preach.
0: Right. Does it surprise you at all that the media doesn't do any kind of due diligence in holding them to account and just goes along with this whole thing? I mean, just for the sake of a good story, you should be writing about this.
1: Yeah, but we've seen more and more as time goes by, the media is more about uh, agenda-driven reporting and uh, their own political perspective rather than the news, and that's a shame.
0: Yeah, it is a big shame, and I'm glad for the work that you guys do. Well, one of the things I want to get into when we come back from this next break is another problem for John Kerry, and this is something you guys covered over at your website. The Washington Post fact checker, believe it or not, and I should give credit where credit is due, just published an article calling out his misleading framing of potential solar and wind jobs. And so this was a little bit encouraging to see, of all outlets, the wall Washington Post making this point. We're going to come back with James Taylor from the Heartland Institute. Stay with us. We'll be back. When I found out I was pregnant, I was devastated. I had no idea what to do. When a young mom faces an unplanned pregnancy, she's confused and scared. Society tells her that a baby is not a life and offers termination as the best solution. Preborn centers shine light into the darkness by offering young moms in crisis hope, love, and life, and an ultrasound to meet their pre-born baby.
2: As soon as I get there, I felt welcome. They gave me the first look. At
0: my baby by providing a free ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855 402 BABY. That's 855 402 2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855 402 2229. Or the There's a pre-born banner to click at Janetmeffer.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty Healthshare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855 855- 5854237 You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet well, they just want to make sure that we can't drive or fly or do any of the things they do over on the left. These climate alarmists like John Kerry, the new climate czar who likes to go on the sightseeing tours of Antarctica just for fun and also you know, take this trip to Iceland and to accept a climate leadership award while he gets there on a private jet. It's absolutely incredible and hypocritical. James Taylor writes about this, president of the Heartland Institute over at climaterealism.com. And I want to get to another John Kerry item here, James, which is very very interesting to me. The Washington Post called him out for talking about the fastest growing job in the U.S. before COVID being solar power technicians and then the second fastest growing job being wind turbine technicians. But how is he misleading the public by putting out those particular phrases about the jobs that apparently miners can just flock to when coal goes up in smoke, so to speak? They could just find new jobs with solar and wind.
1: Right. And so John Kerry dismissively uh, when asked about the the coal miners who have lost their job, and keep in mind there are about 30,000 coal miners in this country, he said, well, they can just go work making uh, solar panels. And then pointing out, as you said, that uh, he, he noted that the solar jobs and the wind jobs are the fastest growing in the country. But that's because you're starting with a very small base. If you only have a few thousand or even a few hundred of these jobs going on are available in the country as of say 5 years ago existing in the country let's say you go from 500 to say 4000 if you're just looking at percentages oh it's the fastest growing you're getting you know 4000% growth or whatever who can match that well, it doesn't mean much because you still only have 4,000 jobs in the whole country, Many, you know, and of course, they're filled. Right. So when John Kerry says this about being the fastest growing jobs, he's not talking about the actual numbers of jobs created. He's talking about percentages, when basically almost nothing increasing to a very small amount is a huge amount of difference. And then finally, if you look at the number of jobs available, which is what's most important, go to Indeed or, excuse me, yeah, Indeed.com or Monster.com and do a search for solar panel installer or whatever it may be, and you are not going to see these tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of jobs uh, being created like John Kerry said. And by the way, it's not just the, the coal mining jobs. Joe Biden's executive order blocking oil and natural gas production on federal lands, that eliminates one quarter of oil production in this country, with the stroke of a pen. That's hundreds of thousands of jobs. Ugh. Those jobs do not exist right now. They're not going to exist anytime in the foreseeable future, and the Washington Post rightly called him out on it. Well, that was Someone good. probably and... lost a job at the Washington Post for doing that, by the way, but <laughs> no, they d- really called him out on it.
0: You're right about that. No doubt somebody probably did lose his job. And something else too, they pay less, right? So it's not as if if you lost your job as a coal miner, you could find a, a great equally or better-paying job doing some kind of solar or wind technician position. It's, it's it's not the case that you're going to make as much money or more doing that other job, even if you could get it.
1: Right. Absolutely. According to the Washington Post, again, this is the Washington Post calling you out. If there's any bias at all, it's on it's on John Kerry's side, it's on Joe Biden's side. The Washington Post notes that the median wage for coal miners is fifty nine thousand dollars, whereas for wind turbine technicians and solar installers, the median uh, salary is, is 20% less than that. Um, that's a significant job cut for people by, okay. So yeah, you can just, you can go to another industry, you can leave your job, hopefully you'll get hired soon and you'll get a 20% pay cut. You should be ecstatic with this. It just shows how unfeeling and how out of touch he is. But when you're a one percenter with your own private jet accepting awards all over the country, I guess that's what goes with the turf.
0: Well, I guess so. And I thought it was quite interesting when you pointed out that Kerry cited these biased and unreliable job stats provided by the wind and solar power industry. He wasn't using federal government statistics. This is the climate, czar. He can't even use federal government statistics to make his point.
1: Well, he can't because he knows even those numbers in Washington Post made note of this, but they accepted his numbers on their face, but even those numbers, you know that they're going to be flawed. I come across these studies all the time uh, if I'm testifying in state legislatures about wind and solar power prices or jobs created, they always cite studies from the Solar Energy Institute or uh, the american wind energy association and and they're just preposterous and yet if I were to say a study by the coal industry says that coal power is better for the economy than <laughs> wind and solar power. I'd be laughed out of the court of public opinion. Yeah. And yet John Kerry mentions these similar surveys on the left or statements on the left. By and large, he gets a free pass on it. Uh, thankfully, the Washington Post noted it. But again, they just noted it and still took it at face value, even at face value, even utilizing the wind and solar industry's biased statistics. Still, it is a devastating blow to workers, American workers in the energy industry throughout our country.
0: It is. And for what? And for what? Because you look at all of the data I know that you've put on your website and lots of good information there. For example, this climate science analysis showing that population density is corrupting the U.S. temperature record. This is quite interesting do, dealing with this issue of weather station inaccuracy. Tell people a little bit about that, James, because I think this is very good information for people to understand.
1: Yeah, thank you for for pointing that out, Janet. And folks can go to climaterealism.com, where we update every day. We debunk what the media presents as its climate scare of the day. And in this one, what you're referring to is um, an analysis by Dr. Roy Spencer. He oversees the NASA satellite instruments that uh, that accurately measure temperature throughout the planet. And what he did is he he looked at the data on U.S. temperature uh stations and what they record what they record and report and what he found is that the warming that that we're measuring on the ground at these stations is occurring entirely in stations that are population biased in other words they're in larger cities where you have more people more equipment more manufacturing that creates artificial warming that has nothing to do with climate change the stations that are outside of the cities that are not corrupted by human impact that creates these warming bubbles Show no warming in recent decades whatsoever, and so what that shows is that either no warming is occurring in the United States other than for micro pockets that have nothing to do with climate change or it 's a very small amount and that 's important to understand when politicians go around the country and especially a year or two years ago as the uh, as the election season got underway, you'd see politician after politician Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, et cetera. Well, here in Detroit, Michigan, or here in Helena, Montana, you can see with your own eyes the impacts of climate change. Well, they must be talking about a period 30 years ago or so because there hasn't been any warming during the past couple decades.
0: <sighs> That's crazy. And I was looking at some of the, the you know previous reporting that was done by one of your fellows, Anthony Watts and his team, a meteorologist. And he was saying that he had found stations located next to like the exhaust fans of AC units and surrounded by asphalt parking lots and roads on blistering hot rooftops. And they found that 68 of the stations were located at wastewater treatment plants where the process of waste digestion causes temperatures to be higher than in surrounding areas. I mean, surely. Probably the National Weather Service knows something of this. Have they made any moves whatsoever to move those particular stations so you would get a more accurate you know, data count of what the, the climate really is?
1: Well, they've made very few changes because keep in mind, so long as people believe that there's a climate crisis, or at least politicians want to focus attention on it, that directs funding to their programs, their agency, their budget increases. They have job security. They have more perks, et cetera. And so they don't have an incentive to provide an accurate temperature record. They have an incentive to create the notion of a climate crisis. So, for example, as you mentioned, one of the, one of the official temperature stations by which we're being told, scientists say the data shows that we're facing all this warming, one of them is situated directly above a barbecue grill. <laughs> I don't know, I'm guessing maybe that adds a little bit of heat when you're barbecuing right underneath the temperature gauge. Uh, what? And, and there were many others that were just like it. Another one is, is right at the end of, a, of an airplane runway. So the <laughs> airplane jet pulls around, and then the hot exhaust from its engines come out and blast the temperature station. Hmm, that might cause some warming too. Yeah, you see it all over the place. And what Anthony Watts showed in his study was that, again, those stations that were not biased under, so, under such corrupted conditions were out in rural areas that didn't have the parking lots and the jet planes and the barbecue grills showed very little U.S. warming over many decades. The only reason we get the notion that we're facing this rapid warming, this record-setting temperatures, is because we're basing it upon corrupted temperature stations that we know are corrupted and that government officials do not uh... do not fix and by the way i mentioned dr roy spencer earlier who oversees the nasa satellite instruments Now, those instruments that measure the atmosphere uniformly report much less warming than what we're told is happening by the government gatekeepers who want us to believe we're facing a climate crisis.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, this is such important stuff. We laugh about it because it's so absurd. But on the other hand, when you see people losing thousands of jobs in the oil and gas industry for what, it really makes you mad. And you can get more information by going to climaterealism.com and reading up on all of these important issues. James Taylor from the Heartland Institute. So good to talk to you, James. Thanks for your good work and for being with us today.
1: Great to talk with you, Janet. Thank you.
0: All right. You take care. God bless. Thanks for being with us on Janet Mafford today. Always a joy to have you with us. Hope you'll join us next time. God bless you. And we'll see you then.